The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Previously on The Ascent of Board Games. We are going to talk about science games. Science! There we go. We are trying to do things that are closer to real science than science fiction. Carolina Biological Supply. That really sounds like they're providing pipettes and fruit flies. And, and formaldehyde frogs. And then they had two or three games in the back. Primordial Soup involves you playing amoebas. You eat other players' poop. In most cases, the amount of fun gameplay in these games is inversely related to the amount of accurate science in them. High Frontier, designed by Philip Eklund. High Frontier is like one of the most complicated board games I've ever seen. Phil Eklund is a literal rocket scientist. Any game that includes a, here's the science behind it, I think automatically fits into this episode. And now the thrilling conclusion of... Science games. So, I need to bring the weird and obscure, right? <laughs> Let's talk about Leaving Earth and Luminaris, designed by Joseph Fatula, 2015. Uh, Frank. Yes. I don't want to leave Earth. This is where all my stuff is. Get off. No. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, Luminaris is a company that produces wooden puzzles and craft supplies and tools. And uh, a few games. And they're pretty unusual in a lot of ways. And I think Joseph Fatula is the owner and artist for Leaving Earth. And in fact, the game comes with a number of laser-cut pieces, which are silk-screened in some ways for the various ships and things. This kind of covers the same ground as High Frontier, except that it starts with the actual let's get off of Earth, let's get into orbit, let's get a manned flight into orbit. Here, you're starting with basically 50s-era rockets, 50s, 60s-era rockets. And eventually, as you go through the expansions, you're going to outer planets, with the first expansion, I think, stopping at Mars as the final goal. So the model here is you lay out the board with a number of cards. There are a lot fewer paths than High Frontier. So instead of all the possible mathematical paths you could use to get to Mars, there are two, really. <laughs> but here you're starting with you have to actually test your engines, test your capsules and everything in test flights. And you're limited on how much money you can spend every turn. You're actually dealing with money instead of the unit of currency is tons of reaction mass put into orbit in High Frontier. Here it's actual money and millions of dollars or whatever. And those first launches, even to get a guy into space, can fail, blow up. Or you can buy tech from other people. So you can you know, launch an Apollo capsule on giant Russian rockets slow lift rockets or whatever. Essentially, you're getting points for just finding things. You can lay out cards which represent things like, you know, finding actual life on various planets. The model is based on a mix of fuel use 
for how much mass you have with your ship, as well as the difficulty of moving across a card. So in order to move from a place to place, they're just a, a single index you factor into your math. So the configuration for a mission is a lot easier to calculate. Okay. But a similar idea in that you're launching missions, trying to get there first. There's not as many technologies, and the technologies are available as drafted. So you can say, okay, we're going to use a solar sail to go to Mars, but it's going to take forever. Meanwhile, someone sends a probe, puts a billion uh, Russian rockets behind it, just fires it as fast as they can, <laughs> and gets there first. You do have to deal with lifting your pieces off of Earth and sometimes assembling a second rocket in orbit to then, you know, do your second phase. Mm -hmm. It's a little tricky to work out the logistics there, but you can do it. And it, it strikes me as a very similar game to High Frontier, but the math is a lot easier. The focus is a lot easier. If there's anything I've learned by playing High Frontier, it is that taking off in a high gravity situation like Earth sucks. Yeah, totally. Also, there's some interesting characteristics in leaving Earth. The radiation belt, I think that's the Van Allen belt, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it? Is actually drawn randomly. So some of the atmospheric effects on Earth and the Van Allen belt are from a card. So the first one to cross it finds out just exactly what it does. So sometimes that first mission can just fail horribly, which affects the rest. Everyone else knows what, you know, what happens. All your astronauts get cancer. What do you guys want to do? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so there's some clever things in the game. It's much more predictable once you get off of those initial test flights and get some stable rockets. But even then, there's a, enough of a, just one or two event quirks. Plus, of course, whatever you find can be whatever you find. There are exploration cards you draw, and you don't know how that'll apply to victory points. So you are kind of fishing, hoping. There are some missions that just say get there and explore. And, you know, the fact that you did it is worth points and everything. And so I think it's a kinder, gentler high frontier. The math and everything is still abstracted but reasonable. And it gets you into that same kind of thinking mode as high frontier. Interesting. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty impressive game and really compelling in terms of how it plays, the kind of things it does. And if you want a high frontier light, seriously, go pay the money. They nailed it. Very cool. Nice. Leaving Earth. So our next game is going to take us back to some biology, specifically botany. And this is going to be photosynthesis. This is a game about growing trees in a forest that was made in 2017 by Blue Orange Games and was designed by Homar Hawk. Sorry. So this is a territory control game that has pieces of various sizes that will affect the rest of the board. So in this game, you are going to start with some small trees that will collect sunlight, and that is your currency for the game. As you play each round, though, your trees will grow taller, as they are prone to do, which will create shade areas behind them, blocking out smaller trees in those areas from getting sunlight. The sun will also move around the board, which is a hexagon, so every round you're assessing how your trees get sunlight based on the position of the sun and of the other trees. And it's a cute little territory control game that it's kind of mind-bending when you think about it, because it's like, 
oh man, in this turn I'm planting this tree, in three turns it will be its biggest size and will be shading out these spaces. How is that going to affect the rest of my placement? And the board is just big enough to be really cramped at four players, making it really difficult, actually, to plan out what the best approach is. Yeah, and especially if you play in the advanced rules where if there's a plant shading, you you just cannot grow a plant in that space. No, obviously, trees can't grow in the shade. What are you, a fern? Jeez. (laughs) Gross. It's another one of those games that's very pretty. Oh, the game is beautiful. I think my favorite part of these are the standees that they have for the trees. They're so cute. Yeah, everybody has, you know, a different color. So there's like fall trees and green trees and that kind of thing. But it's just the game in play is absolutely beautiful to look at. I never really got too into this one because as pretty and as at least scientifically inspired as it is, it just never seemed all that interesting to me. You hate trees, Brian. I do. I do. It's gorgeous. It's abstract. It's mean. Yeah. It is. It is mean. Yeah. Yeah. I like it as a kind of not straightforward point gathering territory control game. I like the shade blocking out Mm -hmm. mechanic that they've got going on there. I think it adds just a level of complexity that makes it slightly more interesting than some other games in that genre. But yeah, it is still a mean territory control point getting game so if that's not your cup then you're not going to find anything life-changing here it does do an interesting representation of like succession and how trees grow in a given space because the other fascinating thing is when you place out new seeds on the board you can only place them within a certain distance of trees that you've already got placed And the size of your placed trees determines how far they can spread their seeds, which is also Mm -hmm. an interesting representation of dispersal. Yeah, it's scientific enough, I think. Yep. And that was photosynthesis. So let me tell you a story, and it may be somewhat apocryphal. I don't know. Board Game Geek, full of lies. Who knows? (laughs) Posted by Ignacy, though, so so maybe it's not apocryphal. Okay. So when Ignacy Trevisek... We're We're very sorry. Yes, all the sorry. Um, Was originally designing Robinson Crusoe. He had Vlada Chivaldi come and play the game. And Vlada said to him, hey, in Robinson Crusoe, there are both good and bad events in the event deck. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, you need to remove all the good events from the event deck. Because math is a cruel mistress. And you will have a game where you have five good events, but you'll also have a game where you have four good events and three good events and two good events and one good event and no good events. And a game where you have no good events or one good event, right? Four or five bad events is a game that is functionally unwinnable, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like, hey, math can make this game bad randomly. And also math can randomly make this game too easy, which kind of sometimes ruins the player's, you know, experience of it, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately... First Martian suffers from the exact same problem. First Martian by Ignacy, Portal Games. You're the first people making a colony on Mars for the first time. It is functionally a re-implementation of Robinson Crusoe, but in space. Space! And it has a similar amount of randomness to it, which makes the game somewhat bumpy 
as a game, right? <laughs> it is not hyper well loved. I like it. I think the theme is really cool. It's it's got an awesome theme. It has some campaign components which are really cool. All the components are totally gorgeous. It's a very well produced game. But it is a game where randomness can make your game either go very well or very badly. Yeah, we've seen that in a number of other co-op games where it's like, in co-op games like this, you're working really hard to make things happen. And if there's just a particular bad event that shows up and ruins your life, it's not a good feeling. And so yeah. a lot of the randomness in First Marchin comes in is there is a sector map. And those sector maps are randomly distributed. Oh, yeah. And it takes it takes a whole, like, disc or two discs to reveal what's on a sector map, right? And if you reveal a thing that's good, then that's good randomness, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't reveal the thing that you need right now, then you have the other side of that. You have kind of bad randomness. And so the sector map is pretty unforgiving because the game is pretty tight. Much like Robinson Crusoe, everything is falling down around you as you're desperately trying to get to the end of this adventure. Mm-hmm. And if you have a couple of bad rolls, like you explore a sector or two sectors, and it just doesn't have the stuff that you need to keep going, the game could just end, right? Your station could fail. Yeah. I think some people kind of feel a little weirdly about this from a theming standpoint, right? Because like, you're the first Martians on Mars, and functionally, you kind of feel like you're like constantly putting up tape and bubblegum mm-hmm. to fix your station, which doesn't feel great given how dangerous Mars is. Like, totally fine if you're on a deserted island and there are a bunch of, like, water and food around that you can just go pick up off the ground. Less so when you're on a planet where if there's a single hole in your habitat that you die. Yeah, that is the worst. Yeah, so some of the theming doesn't, like, quite meld together as it needs to Yeah, for the setting. Yeah, it sort of feels like here's a situation where you have to be extraordinarily careful because a single mistake can kill everybody on the station. But also, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Don't you kind of want to explore and see what it is? And it's a little schizophrenic in that regard. The game is going in a couple different directions, I think. Yeah. But Joe, you haven't answered the most important question. Uh Uh-huh. Can I grow potatoes on Mars? And also, can I be Matt Damon? Uh, you can grow potatoes. You can't be Matt Damon. So <sighs> you'll have well, to decide. Like, you get half of it. You can grow potatoes. Okay. You can, however, science the shit out of things. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> it looks like people have made custom Matt Damon overlays. Of course <laughs> they have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can also be Matt Damon as long as Excellent. you're willing to print it. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Good news. I am. and that is first martians one that i wanted to talk to which is again on the rather abstract side which may tell you more about me it may suggest that i'm scared of science even though i'm not i'm just scared of high frontier entries right (laughs) i did want to mention the search for planet x which is a 2020 release designed by matthew o'malley and ben rossett from renegade game studios This is a deduction game, and if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I'm a sucker for deduction games. It's basically a game in which there are a certain number of sectors of space that you're exploring, and each of them has a certain type of thing in it, whether it be asteroids or dwarf planets or gas clouds or whatever they are. And there are fairly specific rules on how those things can exist in relation to each other. If there's an asteroid, there has to be another asteroid in at least one adjacent sector. If there is a comet in place, it's only going to be in a prime-numbered sector. 
So, you know, there's a certain amount of rules of what's going on. It's basically app-driven, and you say, I want to explore this sector, or I want to look for, you know, dwarf planets in this group of sectors, and the app will tell you how many there are. You are doing your individual little logic grid to figure out, because your ultimate goal is to figure out where planet X is. And the app will never tell you, even if you search a sector, this is where planet X is. It sort of is invisible to sensors or whatever you want to call it. But if you can figure out all the rules of the things around it, you can figure out where it must be, which is, in a sense, reflective of how we've discovered a lot of the outer planets. It's like, okay, there's something screwing with the orbit of this other planet, so there has to be something out there. And if you know where to look, you can find it. Yeah, that's a really cool way of doing a deduction game. Yeah, I think the the theme is a great choice. It's how scientists today look for Dyson spheres mm-hmm. as they look for the dimming of the sun in a way that is unusual. Right, there, there must be a thing that is causing it, and if we can find the symptoms, we'll know the cause. I'm pretty sure we have a Dyson sphere vacuum cleaner. <laughs> that counts, right? Sure. Each of you is playing a certain specific observatory on Earth, and you've got little factoids about the observatory, and your little miniature kind of resembles what it physically looks like, which is cute. There's a basic version and an advanced version. It's an app-driven game, if that affects your choices. It's very well put together. It's clean. It plays pretty fast. And I quite like it. The biggest difference between those versions is the number of sectors mm-hmm. in, on the board game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the advanced mode, there's a lot more sectors and a lot more stuff in them that you have to sort out. It's also interesting because it actually, as the turns pass, there's a little sort of cardboard thing on the board that determines what sectors you can scan in based on how the Earth is rotating. So you can't always look for things in certain areas if the planet is facing the wrong way. So not extremely scientific, but nicely themed and well put together and a good deduction game. Yeah, I actually do like the app for this Mm -hmm. because I've had so many deduction games crash because, oh, I answered that question wrong where you give the wrong answer mm-hmm. for something yeah. and uh, like Vienna falls apart rapidly. That is very true. Even with one wrong answer. Yeah. I do wish the app had like space music like you hear <laughs> at a planetarium when you were a kid. That's the only thing I think it's missing. We can certainly get space music, Jason. I'll play it in the background. <laughs> Crank up some laser Floyd. I've got uh-huh. a little <laughs> XY projector. There you go. There you go. That is interesting, right? Because like, on one hand, yes, that's great, but I think on 90% of app-driven games, I end up just turning the volume off. Agreed. I'm the same way. I just turn it down real low, but I still like having it there. Just a little bit of ambiance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, but the I... uh, XCOM game has great music. Right. It does. Is yeah. it taken from the video game? I think so. Makes sense. That was good music. I think, Jason, when we play this game, we can definitely get you that space music just through like YouTube. But then I think we're going to have to turn the lights down and say, space, <laughs> the final frontier. Oh, so we're on, we're on board a, a Picard season three spaceship? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, where everyone's tripping over things because we can't see anything. No lighting whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I was going for more of a planetarium vibe, but that's not far off. Or you could get uh, just a bunch of black lights up and do a Spencer's Gifts vibe. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, Picard Season 3's spaceship designs are trying to feel like planetariums because <laughs> they're so flipping dark. That seems like a poor design. 
Well, I mean, I many many it problems. Seems like a not very safe working environment. Exactly. Oh, awful working environment. Exactly. This is then our hot takes on Picard season. How else do you explain all the transporter accidents? <laughs> <laughs> because the lights were off. Right. Exactly. I couldn't uh, see the controls. Pushed the wrong button. Yeah. yeah. It happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big. Problem. All right. Anyway, that was search for Planet X. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get back to a more realistic bent with Space Race, designed by Michael Mikes, released by Board Cubator. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's that's the name, name. of their company. Yep. yep, they did it. In Space Race, uh, you are one of the kind of Cold War powers that's trying to reach space first. The game takes place kind of over seven decades, and functionally it's a points game, right? Like the winner is the person who has the most points at the end. Over the course of the game, everybody will kind of pick simultaneously an action to do, and then action will do a specific thing, but then it will also activate cards that you've previously played if they share a banner with the card that you're playing. Right, and so the kind of the engine building is you get a bunch of cards with similar banners so that you can play your action card, but then get a bunch of extra additional benefits to kind of keep your engine going. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this game is that you have a hand of cards, you cannot play cards from your hand. That is true. At the start of the turn, you put them into what's called the Unexplored Universe, and then a certain number of those cards are turned over, and then anyone can buy and activate them. So if you have a card that you want to do, you can put it out there and hope that you're the one that gets to do it, which is an interesting choice. Yeah, the game has uh, iconography that once you've played with it a little bit makes a lot of sense, but initially feels a little intimidating. The game has almost no text from a rules standpoint. It's purely iconography. And it'll often be like a symbol on the left, then a little meeple, then some symbols on the right. And what that means is you pay for what's on the left, and then you do what's on the right. Although I did notice, and I thought it was kind of odd, that a lot of the cards are a combination of iconography in English. It's like, you know, you get equal to the red icon level of the white icon in building icon. So it's like you have iconography, but you don't have the cross-language benefits of it. It's it's kind of a weird choice. Yes, it has a weird mix for sure. And the game is fine. Yeah. Like we played through it a couple times. It's fine. It's not astounding. It feels weird because of all the things it's trying to do. It does a good job of kind of representing the time period. There are lots of cards. You know, if you play with someone who is really into space and stuff like that, we played with Chris, our good friend. And every time we played a card, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that card! Here's the history of that card, right? Yeah. The cards are almost all representing real people or real events. You know, there's uh, yeah. one of the propaganda cards is popularization of science, and it's a picture of Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, so you get a little of everything. It's actually based on a card game from 2017, which I'm not familiar with, but it looks like it has a lot of the same structure, and I'm almost wondering if the card game might be a better game in that it seems a little more streamlined. I could see that, because this game is definitely has a little bit of, uh, it's going all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, what was the card game, Space Race? It was called Space Race The Card Game. <laughs> Which is funny because it came out of before this one. And yeah. It was just called Space Race. Yeah. It's, it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that said, the components are great. The board is this big kind of blueprint looking diagram of the rocket. Yeah, it does look like a, a scrolled blueprint. Mm-hmm. 
the art's great. The entire art design is really good. All the card art is hand-drawn, and it looks really nice. Yeah, the scoring markers are, you know, each group's individual rocket design. So, like, if you're playing NASA, you have a Saturn V rocket. And it's like the U.S., USSR, China, the European Space Agency, and the private sector. So there's, like, cards of Richard Branson for Virgin Space in there. So you get a little bit of everything. Every component of the game is great. Just as a game, it does not super come together. Yeah, agreed. Although I do wonder if the card popularization of science should have been Carl Sagan. Mm. There is also a Carl Sagan card. Okay, well, that's good. All right, that was Space Race. Let's keep talking about space for one more, <laughs> one more game, guys. I mean, space is very sciencey. Hey, Jason, I'll allow it, but I want some dice rolling in it. Okay, well, boy, have I got the game for you, Mike. (laughs) So we're talking about 2021's Intrepid from Jeff Beck and Jeff Krauss from Uproarious Games. I know we've talked about this on previous recordings, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we've ever gone into detail on it. It might have just been one we mentioned kind of in passing. But this is a cooperative game. Each of you will be playing an astronaut from a different country that's on the International Space Station. You're all trying to, at the same time, generate resources to not die, Mm -hmm. as well as deal with disasters and accomplish missions that would also probably kill you if you don't deal with them. So it's a very, I wouldn't say stressful game, but there's a lot of, I hope you're making enough oxygen because I don't want to die this turn. (laughs) So each player will play to another player. Uh, There's a red team and a blue team pairing. You'll be generating complementary resources. So for example, you have power, climate, nutrition, and oxygen. So one parrot might be nutrition and oxygen, and everything that they're generating will be those resources, and they'll be working together to make sure that they can generate enough to stay out of the red zone, which will end the game immediately. Every player has a giant dial that's tracking the resources that they're generating, and as the requirements for the station change, because you're installing new modules, those will get more and more strenuous in terms of how much you need to generate to stay out of that danger zone. And each player will also be getting what we call a career badge, which is like, it gives you an additional power, right? It's just another thing you can do during one of the phases. But where this game really shines is it's extremely asymmetric. Each of the countries plays very differently than the others. And they all fortunately have a a complexity rating. So you could be like playing the Americans where it's like, hey, everything you want is, I think Americans teaming is like they generate a lot of extra dice, right? You can keep rolling more dice into your pool. If I remember correctly, or is that the Russians? Yeah, one of them is just like, hey, what if I have all the dice but have absolutely no control over them? Whereas another faction might be like, well, I've only got a couple of dice, but I can make them be whatever I want them to be. Yeah, or Joe's favorite, the facing of the die matters when you roll it. Mm, uh, Japan. Japan? (laughs) So good. (laughs) It's kind of broken up into six phases. Real generally, so you roll your dice for however your particular country's dice rolling mechanic works. You roll the dice and you'll be assigning those dice to either tiles that you've you know installed in your module inside the space station, or you can assign them to missions, you can assign them to disasters, or you can kind of put them up into the station tiles for other players to use. Like Mike was mentioning, some countries may not have a lot of dice mitigation, so like they might be going, hey, I need a six, and I don't have any sixes, and I have no way to get a six. Can someone please give me a six? And if someone has you know, extra dice or a die they don't need, they can place that into that station module and be able to trade it. Each of the modules has like a 
special ability where it can be like increase or decrease by one or just trade for the actual value, that sort of thing. So there is some cooperation and like definitely communication is necessary in this game. Once you've placed out all of those dice, you calculate the results, which is where you generate the actual resources. So this is when the pairs will be like, okay, I make four oxygen. How much power did you make? How much nutrition did we make? And then you'll put all those up on your actual board, right? Tracking how many you generated. Then you'll use those resources. So if you're doing missions, you'll have to spend the resources on the mission card. Like it might say, hey, nutrition loses four resources and power loses one or something like that. And then you'll advance that mission to the next phase where it gets even more expensive to do. And then you'll check and say, okay, after all that's been resolved, do we have any resources in the yellow? Okay, that's not great, but we have emergency supplies that'll make sure we don't die. If any of them are in red, you're, you're out. The game's mm. over. <laughs> you're all dead because someone didn't get all the resources they needed. If you're not dead, you'll now look at everybody's generation and see, okay, who has the least amount of resources generated? Oh, it was Jason. He only generated four. Well, that's all the capacity, which is basically the money of the game, that you're going to get for the spending round. So thanks a lot, Jason. You did a real crap job there. <laughs> then you'll resolve disasters, which is like, here's bad stuff that's happening to you. And then you'll spend capacity, which is where you buy new tiles for your modules. So the tiles will let you do different things. You can buy additional dice to roll in your interior pool, which is really necessary as the game goes on. And then you can also spend it on the research track, which gets you access to more powerful tiles, right? So the starting tiles are kind of crap, and they will definitely not do for the rest of the game. So you need to get access to level 2, level 3, and level 4 tiles over time to be able to generate the resources you need to keep the station going. And then at the end of the round, you reset the dial and reset all your resource tractors back to zero, because now you get to start over. And after Joe installed three modules on his turn, because he had a ton of money for some reason, great he drained my dial which made my dial much much worse and the red zone got much larger thanks uh, because joe. of that yeah thanks joe Here to help. killed us all mm -hmm. so where the game really shines and what's really fascinating about it is the differences in the way that the countries work and the way their tiles work so as you place the dice on your station tiles on the bottom left hand corner they have an ability typically like when you place dice here you get an extra die to roll into your pool cool or you place a die here, you can decrease another die by one. Or you place a die here, and you can change a die to a two. Specific things like that. And they're all designed to kind of combo together to help that faction get what they need. Right? So some factions need a lot of doubles to do anything. Some factions need evens or odds specifically to be able to do anything. I think it's the Brazil faction has this crazy lock mechanic where they can't use any of their tiles until they've unlocked them. So they need specific values on their dice Oof. to unlock the tile to be able to use the tile. It's utter insanity. It's all done simultaneously, so there's no downtime, which is really nice. And it heavily relies on you communicating really well with your partner, where you're like, Ugh, I dice went really badly this turn. I really need you to generate as much of you know oxygen or whatever my resource is right. as possible when this game is over. <laughs> Yeah, looking at the components, and I don't know if these are like Kickstarter-specific ones, but they look absolutely gorgeous, the sort of multi-level boards with little slots for all the cubes and things to go in. That's just the basic components. The basic components are very, very It nice. looks like it's oh, yeah, very, totally. yeah. I will say, I've seen two copies of this game, and I think both of them do have a little bit of like... Warping, warping issues and components yeah. yeah yep all the dials are warped that's a common complaint and i've seen personally that a lot of the dice had problems with the paint didn't fill in all the little pips on the dice that's not great 
some copies have it worse than others, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's just the, whoever their manufacturer was, but that was a weird thing that I haven't encountered in a lot of, especially Kickstarted games. Yeah, especially so, for you basic know, just dice, something yeah. to be aware of. Yeah. But yeah, the dial that counts down all the numbers is actually totally awesome. The main dial, mm-hmm. resource yeah. board. Dial. It's slightly terrifying to look at, which is appropriate <laughs> yeah. given the amount yeah. of importance it has that do you have enough oxygen? The base game comes with, I think, two scenarios, and there's an expansion, which I think ships with the main game. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it does, which has like, two more scenarios. So the base scenario is very straightforward. Like, the game doesn't mess with you a ton, but some of the scenarios, we've played a couple of them, and they are hard. <laughs> Yeah, Lord. yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're also like solar storm, toxic leak. You're like, oh, these sound pleasant. This is lovely, <laughs> yeah. Wait. Yeah, they're real bad, and also they're hard. Yeah, which in a cooperative game like that is a good thing. No, I mean, I think I think that's a positive statement yeah. that the game has varying levels of difficulty, and some of them are punch you in the face hard. That's good. I would argue that's what you want yeah, for, for, co-op for games, cooperative games. Yep. You want something you can manage to learn the game, and then you want to be challenged. Yeah, it definitely keeps you coming back because you're always like, at least for me, I'm always like, I want to try another country. And like, I've been slowly working my way up to the complexities. And oh boy, <laughs> some of those are, there's some real brain burners. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is Intrepid. I haven't gotten to play this one yet, but I would really like to because it looks pretty cool. Are you serious? We, yeah. We I know you guys have too. played it a oh, lot wow. and I just have never gotten in on one of those. Guys, we need to start inviting Brian to things. I would I love guess. that. <laughs> Oh, no, but... Uh... All right. Mike, tell us about Punnett Squares. Yeah, so our next game is Genotype. This is a 2021 game from Genius Games, designed by John Coview. Sorry if i mispronouncing that. And as I was saying earlier, this game comes with a whole separate book next to its instruction booklet that's just, here's the science behind Punnett Squares and heredity. Anything that includes that, I think, falls into this category of science! Science! So, Genotype is a worker placement game that leads into a drafting of traits of pea plants. And it is very much a selective breeding game, so they don't even try to say, like, hey, this is evolution or anything like that. No, you are intentionally breeding plants together to get certain results, just like Mendel did in his monastery, because Gregor Mendel was a brother of the cloth, and this game represents that by having assistants who are various brothers and nuns who give you special powers in the game. The game plays out in six rounds, and you start by placing out your workers, which are little shovels. You can do things like get money or get tools or new pea plants. But the meat of the game is you are trying to plant plants into your garden that have various phenotypes, which are expressive traits like purple flowers or round peas or is tall. But then you can also manipulate the parents in four Punnett squares, which we'll talk about in the director's cut of this episode. (laughs) But At basics of this game, the Punnett squares are going to show you how to divide up the dice after everybody is done placing out their workers. Because in the next phase of the game, you roll the dice for each of the plants and then put them into categories based on the Punnett squares. And those categories will be either homozygous dominant, 
recessive or heterozygous, which for anybody who remembers their high school biology, that will have a lot of meaning. Uh, For everybody else, those words are completely meaningless. He's speaking science. Yeah, once you've sorted out those dice, you would then draft them according to your worker placement. And when you draft them, you cover up a matching trait on one of your planted pea plants. Once all of your pea plants' traits have been covered, then you score it for points. And whoever has the most points at the end of the game is the winner. After each round, you can also pay for an upgrade. You can hire new assistants. You can extend your garden. You can get the ability to draft more dice. And it just it's a cute little worker placement drafting game that plays out over six rounds. I think we went over it. We kind of play tested a little bit. I think I really dig it enough that I might actually buy it. Okay. So I've given myself a point. Does that That's count? That's not how this works. I get the impression, and I am not a science teacher, but I mean, I feel like a lot of Mendel's stuff turned out to not be entirely accurate the way he saw it, but his process and like the early stuff he was starting to do really set a lot of genetic research off in the right direction. And I get the impression that this is a pretty good simulation of what he was able to decipher at the time. I mean, basically all he did was, oh, both of these pea plants have purple flowers. What if we breed them together? And, oh, look, the baby's got white flowers. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. And he wrote down his observations. Remember, kids, the only difference between screwing around and science is writing it down. From a scientific standpoint, it's actually kind of ironic because if he had used almost any other plant, this wouldn't have worked (laughs) because the phenotypes and genotypes of the pea plant are pretty much this straightforward but like there are a bunch of other plants that have more of like a sliding scale of genes and if he had picked one of those we might not have an understanding of genes like we do today so (laughs) hooray for getting lucky i guess yeah i mean you know sometimes science is luck luck and writing it down which he did Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, I have to write? Nobody told me that. Oh, well, you can type now. It's okay. And that was Genotype. So. More Phil Eklund. More Phil Eklund. I want to do a, a longer overview of some of the Phil Eklund games. And he's done an entire series of games based on early civilization, starting at Petri dishes to bugs to American megafauna talking about large animal migrations and evolution. One of the recent ones that I played has some very interesting ideas, and that's Bios Mesofauna. Most of Phil Eklund's games are not designed to be played. That sounds awful. (laughs) By humans. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're designed to be observed on a table and be like, wow. There are the rules. This is how the simulation works. As far as games you would play to be competitive and to function, you know, and com- and win. Have fun? Nah, nah. <laughs> I mean, they're fun. They're interesting. But, you know, play properly to win, work out strategies. Nah, that's <laughs> the, the most important thing is that it kind of plays like how things work out or with variations. He's more interested in the simulation and how things are represented aspects, mm-hmm. which makes him really good for you know any kind of science or simulation discussions. Mesofauna, though, got reworked 
by another guy, aside from Phil Eklund, named Jeff Mankel, who has been doing some expansions and rules writing on High Frontier. So when you get to Mezzofauna, you have bugs. They will pick up traits of new bugs and gradually hybridize. It has a concept of growing basal organs where those organs become not only part of the species, but part of the related species. So basically, a species will develop particular mutations, but also begin to fork off into new species, kind of that weird branch where you get an entire family. And the new species will have all the basal organs that had evolved from the base species and then begin to mutate fork on their own. And this model is actually perfectly represented here, as each player can have up to six or seven different species on the board, potentially, Hmm. of their own, instead of playing just one species. Aside from that, you have a fairly complex model of how things work with herbivores and whether they're flower or grass eating, basically. And basically the biome and the insects can slowly change the biome they're in from flower to grass by being pollinators. Then all the way on top of that, you get parasites. (laughs) So each player can have a parasite species that associates itself with one other particular species or one other player color and their related species. And it can spread on its own to coexist with that particular species has to be very specialized because parasites are very specialized Mm -hmm. and really can't be knocked out of its niche, which is also true. But also this one went on to a new kind of different level and it has three different levels of game from the game standpoint. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a simple game, a better, the caterpillar game, the butterfly game, actually is almost Euro-y. The random events are way toned down. The game is fairly predictable. You're drafting your immune things, and it takes about an hour to play. You also don't get into some of the more elaborate, crazier rules like balloon drifting (laughs) and continental drift don't take place in that, or, you know, extinction events, which are in the full game and which have the typical Phil Eklund craziness where, (laughs) oh, wow, volcano exploded. Okay, game over. Or, you know, that entire continent's just gone. Forget it, just write off every species on that chunk. Nice. (laughs) That sounds like a Phil Eklund game, all right. Oh, but yeah, it's actually, for all of the description and everything, and all the stuff that goes on, that butterfly game is totally playable and fairly easy to teach and pick up. It's unintuitive at first, but I was surprised at how I think it's the most approachable the Phil Eklund games I've ever seen, especially for the amount of detail that's in it. Interesting. So if you're starting your exploration of Phil Eklund's oeuvre, maybe start there. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Also, why are you doing that? And for the crazy people, you can actually play a BIOS game that starts at BIOS in a Petri dish litter of microorganisms is BIOS Genesis. Then move on, taking your experience in that game into BIOS Mesofauna, which is strictly bugs. 
take that into Bios megafauna, which at that point is large animals. Yep. I think that one's specifically like humans versus mammals. No, megafauna is dinosaurs, mammals, and large animals. Then take that into Bios Origins, which is the dawn of humanity growth and is a civ game. Yeah. Starting with opening your brain and understanding how the human brain begins to adapt and then going on to build technologies. And then into Bios Transhumanity, which is basically as we become evolved humans who can change our evolution. Well, there is also, don't forget, there's one called Animal Farm which basically ties American megafauna and origins together as you establish how the human brain evolves. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream someday. Everything is there. Yep. Okay, well, God go with you, Mike. You have fun with that. I'm in. I remember buying the second edition of Bios Megafauna, opening that shit up and just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I packed it back up and it sat on my shelf ever since. Oh, I've got it. Megafauna is actually pretty playable. Mesofauna, I think, is a better intro, though. Sure. I think it has a lot of the same ideas as Megafauna, and I can go into more detail if we do an animal. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about this again if we do an animal episode. Oh, yeah. We could just do a whole episode on Phil Eklund. Oh, God. I think that'd be fun. Oh, totally. I'm I'm in. I'm that day. Oh, man. (laughs) Does that mean we have to play them? Yep. 100%. We did it, Joe. We finally got them to play High Frontier. Nailed it. And finally... (laughs) Mike, are you going to join me for John Company? John Company? We'll talk about that later, after the episode. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's from the maker of... um, Root. Root. And also Pax Pamir, which we had so much Uh, fun exploring. We we attempted to play. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, I love Pax Pamir. I think it would be fine if we had someone who knew it to explain it to us. Yeah. The rules are a bit inscrutable. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we tried to play it, and we played it very wrong. Yes. Yep. We think. And Oh, man. Okay, all right. And it made the game not a game so much as a weird activity yes. we're all doing together. But that's just because, like, the rule book is not well laid out. Okay, so to kind of wrap up, let's talk about Earth. Just the whole it's thing. It's a wonderful planet. We all love it. Yeah, we've already left Earth, Joe. Keep also, up. Also, it was designed by Maxine Tardif. And released by Inside Up Games. Did they do the fjords? I don't know if you know about this, about <laughs> Earth, but that's a true statement. Okay. So Earth is a action game, right? So on your turn, you will select an action. It's very much a you benefit and everyone else benefits whenever you take an action, but you benefit more, right? And so you might, like, plant a new card from your hand into your tableau, or you might water them, and so you get some plant cards on your tableau that gets you points in essence stuff point salad game for lack of a better term mm-hmm. it has a lot of engine builder stuff very similar to like wingspan or terraforming mars where you know you kind of line up these combos of like well cool every time we do a green action i add three growth options and then remove two growth options to get some soil and remove a soil to get some other stuff right and you follow down that chain of things getting kind of all of your additional benefits it's a very pretty game all of the artwork are photos of the specific things that they're talking about it so it's from real life and the photos are very well presented the game has a lot of moving pieces right there's a lot of different combos you're going to see a lot of cards which you know we've talked about some other games similar to terraforming and this game does not have the problem of you don't see enough cards to really control your strategy you're going to see a lot of cards over the course of the game Mm -hmm. it has some interesting stuff like there's 
instead of a discard pile, you have what they call a compost pile, which is basically you're taking cards that you don't want either out of your hand or just from the deck and just putting them in a face-down pile. You can spend those cards for things or they're worth points at the end. There's multiple different currencies going on. There are plant growth markers, which are different from plant cubes. It seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I bypassed this one when it was on the original Kickstarter, but after having played through a couple rounds last night and learned through it, I think I like it. I think I may wind up getting a copy. It looks like it's going to scratch for me that same kind of itch as Terraforming Mars, but just with a lot of different bits going on. And as Joe alluded to, not quite as random as Arc Nova. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to spending more time with this one. One thing I just want to touch back on Joe talking about the art on the cards, like they are all photographs. What I think is impressive to me anyway, because this is one thing that just personally irks me in a lot of other games. All of the pictures look internally consistent, by which I mean, Mm -hmm. they all look like they belong together. I cannot stand it when I'm playing a game and like the art is drastically different from card to card or it's clearly different photography styles or, you know, just the settings on the cameras alone can be obviously different from picture to picture, and it's really jarring. This is, they clearly took their time making sure everything was consistent, which I really, really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, like, the art is impressive, Mm -hmm. which is surprising because they're, you know, when I say, oh, they're just real photos, it's more than that. It's actively impressive, which is a statement for, like, hey, they're all photos, but they all flow together. They all look like they were taken by the same or similar artists. Yeah, it's not just like they went to Flickr and said, give me a picture of a butterfly. They clearly picked this out in detail. But yeah, and there's like 400 cards. A lot of them are double-sided. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but they really put it together nicely. I think, Jason, when we were playing this the other night, you mentioned something that I feel like I should hit on because this game feels to me a lot like, what's the... Wingspan? Wingspan. Huh, okay. And you had said that, like, oh, the growth cubes are basically just eggs from Wingspan. And it's funny because I don't like Wingspan. Like, that game is incredibly popular, but I just didn't have fun playing it. Mm -hmm. And this one kind of falls in between Wingspan and, like, a Terraforming Mars for me. So you still prefer Terraforming Mars based on what you saw? I think I do, but, like, I also really like Terraforming Mars. Yeah, it's a real good game. The one thing that concerns me at this game, the components are very nice, but one of the things you can do is like have your plants grow over time. And there's basically these little wooden cylinders that you stack up. And when you get to the top, you put like a little tree topper on it. And I just know that if you're playing this game with physical components, those things are going to go flying all over the place because stacking things up, unless it's a dexterity game, is a recipe for things falling over. And adorable. Especially with your Sequoia with its Oh, God, yeah, I need a stack of eight. (laughs) I was at the point we were doing it on Tabletop Simulator, and it's like, this thing is too tall for Tabletop Simulator to allow me to stack all the pieces on it. I mean, it it would allow it. It just, you had to mess with settings, and I wasn't going to even bother trying that because it's dumb. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be a fascinating game to see how popular it becomes, because both Terraforming Mars and Wingspan also became very popular very quickly, and I feel like this game is right in that same wheelhouse. Yeah, Earth has some pretty good, it's starting to sell out, 
get its reputation around. Yeah, it's already in the top 300 on Board Game Geek, and I don't know how long it's even been available. Mm-hmm. It came out, quote unquote, this year. Mm-hmm. Like looking at the Kickstarter, it like fulfilled in the last month or two. So it's so still pretty new. It's still pretty yeah. new. Yeah. Right, it's at the point where the Kickstarter is fulfilled and there are some copies available in the wild, but not like an infinite number of them. Mm-hmm. So that is Earth, and it's on the hotness on the Board Game Geek as we record this. So there's definitely people interested in it. So that is our list of science games. Our first hypothesis about what a science games podcast should look at. So if you give us feedback and tell us what of our choices are correct and what are incorrect, then we can release a revised thesis and maybe uh, get a respectable journal to publish it. No, we're not doing any of that. That's a lie. This has not been a peer-reviewed podcast. No, not even a little bit. Oh, God, that would slow things down even more. Yeah. But, yeah, hopefully you folks have gotten some good ideas about games you might be interested in exploring. As always, if there are others that you think we should know about or have forgotten or how could you not have included X, we would love to hear about it, either on our website or Twitter or even our Discord, all of which you can find at ascentofboardgames.com. And... I don't know. Anybody have any wrap-up ideas we need to talk about? That's what I thought. Oh, wait. (laughs) There's one game I just thought, oh. Oh, no. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Sneak one more game in. As is traditional, Frank. Oh, yeah, you're right. I do. So there's a game called Exposition Zeta. It's by uh, John Manker, the person who reworked BIOS Mesofauna, or basically added the two euro simpler versions. And it's kind of a weird worker placement, kind of almost Euro. Basically, you do warp drive. You warp into a planetary system, and then you all take turns sending out your workers with very few actions to try to explore and gain as much science as you can. Sounds pretty science fiction to me, Frank. Yeah, yeah, a little too science fiction, I think. Except for the part where there's a system generation system that you roll 11 dice and you basically generate, first of all, the star, whether it's K-class, and then modify it based on what kind of systems it has in it. And that's all totally based on astronomy models, based on the star size. So you start basically and roll 11 dice. You roll the initial how many planets, then end up rolling for the types of planets. And whether or not there's, you know, an asteroid belt or certain events that might have happened, basically one of the dice is an event that might have changed the solar system in some way. That is just trippy to look at. I'm just fascinated because I'm looking at the page of this on the Board Game Geek, and it does talk about the star system generator. It also says, during the warp stage of the advanced game, you interact with the other player's crew members to gain advantages. Romance or intrigue may occur. (laughs) (laughs) that is actually a thing so now it's mass effect i mean (laughs) it's actually not a combat anything you're on one ship there are different modules you can add to up the science fiction level the reason i mentioned it though is the the system generation tool oh come on traveler did that 40 years ago oh good point but you don't find it a board game much. that's true totally It's the No Man's Sky of board games. (laughs) Yeah, very much. All right. Well, now that we've gotten Frank's obligatory extra game out of the way. (laughs) It is tradition. As it is. 
Yeah, Frank is the Columbo of this podcast. Oh, just one more thing before we get. Yeah, totally. Hopefully you folks enjoyed that. As always, we love to hear from you. We would love to get iTunes reviews because they help us find new people. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as all the pictures of crazy Phil Eklund boards and other things. Yes. Hopefully you enjoyed this. We will talk at you next month. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. So when Ignacy, uh, sorry, I needed to look at, oh God. Trevisek, <laughs> I believe. Trevisek, yes. Ignacy Trev Trevisek? Trevisek? Close enough.